Uh, good evening. You all know what deja vu sounds like, or feels like. Uh, welcome and uh, good evening to the, welcome to the halfway point of this marathon series of lectures. I don't think I realize the enormity of this undertaking when I agreed to do it, um, especially since I didn't even narrow the focus of the discussion very much. And by the time that this whole series is over, I'm going to be a complete instant amateur expert on everything in the world, um, which is, I guess, like the typical Singapore voter. But one thing I've discovered, and that is, if you don't know something, as long as you sound authoritative, and you behave authoritative, and you have an authoritative podium, most of the time, people think you're authoritative. So even though I'm venturing into grounds that I have no knowledge about um, for this lecture and for the next two, as long as I look authoritative, can you just go along with the ride? Now, the first lecture dealt with politics in Singapore in the next 50 years, and second focused on um, our economic landscape. This uh, third lecture is titled Security and Sustainability. Now, I should first explain that my interpretation of the word sustainability for tonight's lecture. I'm explicitly not defining sustainability in its quasi-environmental context. Because while this is an important subject on which Singapore has much to contribute, to the extent that there are already two academic institutes devoted to this subject, I'm going to leave it to them or to the next SR Nathan fellow to speak about. And it's just too broad an area to bring environmental sustainability and security together. I tried and I just couldn't figure out how to do so. And even this attempt to try to narrow the scope of discussion leaves a frustratingly diverse landscape to cover. And so therefore to impose a, a sort of conceptual framework for tonight's lecture, I'm categorizing security and sustainability into four dimensions, external, internal, civil, and societal. And I further focus, perhaps too arbitrarily, on some specific policy issues which I believe can enhance the sustainability of existing measures in each of these security dimensions. Now, I define sustainability not just in practical terms of resource constraints or capabilities, but also in terms of keeping pace with the changing values of an evolving society, particularly our younger generation wanting more voice and participation in policy creation. So using this framework, let me propose and discuss specific policies in each security dimension. First, of course, is external security. My assumption, and to me, and actually a self-evident truth, is that the strategic vulnerability of Singapore will always dictate the need for a strong military deterrence. Therefore, I've always assumed that there's no need to even discuss this point at all. After all, an IPS survey has shown that an overwhelming 98% of Singaporeans support national service. Unfortunately, the same survey also revealed that the main reason for supporting NS is that it is, quote unquote, good for our boys. The actual military rationale is apparently not the key consideration of, for most Singaporeans. I think this would be a serious case of misplaced enthusiasm. Despite its success as a nation-building tool, the deterrence impact of national service must always be the primary reason for national service. The prolonged peace and stability we enjoy today, which many probably take for granted, and as evidence, 
that a strong deterrence is actually no longer necessary is precisely and ironically because of that very same deterrence. The difficulty, of course, for government to convince Singaporeans about potential threats is that speaking about them only creates unnecessary tension with our neighbors and gives fodder for potential enemies to criticize us for scaremongering. Now, I'm under the same self-imposed censorship here. Public settings like this are not appropriate venues to discuss the nature of our security threats, nor to raise convincing examples or anecdotes of the reality of that threat. Therefore, I'm reduced for the time being at this forum to simply remind ourselves that the politics of pragmatism or real politic, rather than wishful thinking, must always underpin Singapore's foreign policy. And so we must realize that geography is destiny. We are destined to be with our immediate neighbors, sometimes the best of friends, and sometimes much less so. And what Theodore Roosevelt said about speaking softly but carrying a big stick, and what Lee Kuan Yew said about Singapore being only a small shrimp in a large ocean, but a poisonous one, these should probably be the pithy quotes that should be inscribed on Safti's walls for all young SAF officers to read. A strong SAF is a strategic imperative given our geopolitical history and position. And therefore, we need to find ways to maintain against the specter of an aging and declining population the deterrent capability of not just our regular, but particularly our reserve forces. Even with outsourcing of some NS jobs and restructuring of organizational structures, a critical mass of reserve soldiers remains important even in an age of advanced technology and weaponry. This starting point therefore brings me to the proverbial elephant in the room, which I will always identify at each lecture. And this time, it's a she-elephant. The question here is simple. Will the time ever come when universal female conscription becomes necessary? And even if it does not become an absolute necessity, should we prepare for the possible eventuality given the very long time frames required for debate and preparation before any actual implementation. After all, much debate and preparation will clearly be necessary. There's a huge caveat or qualifier to the overwhelming 98% support of NS by our citizens. The same IPS survey revealed that only 9% of all Singaporean women surveyed and 13% of those under 30 supported female conscription. A different study found broadly the same results. A slightly higher proportion, 22% of Singaporean women support female conscription, but only 9% said they were willing to do it for two years. In other words, it's great for my father, my husband, my boyfriend, or my son to do NS, but not me. So if we're to change young Singaporean women's views about female conscription, which by the way is gender neutral in the Conscription Act, the first challenge is to even convince them that there is indeed a demographic dilemma. And going by past attempts to raise the issue and the very lukewarm responses received, I think a lot of convincing remains to be done. 
Current demographic trends from the United Nations shows that in, in, a, in a, what is called a no-change scenario, meaning that we assume current total fertility rates, or TFR, that we have today, which is only about less than 1.2, and no inward migration, the male population aged 15 to 24 would decline by about 35 percent between 2015 and 2040, a drop of one-third in 25 years. The rate of decline will continue so that in 50 years' time, which is the scope of this lecture series, by 2065, the same male NSH cohort will be less than half the size of what it is today. Now, while acknowledging this trend, Mindef has also said that with technological advances and organizational restructuring, the SAF can maintain its same deterrent capability. Of course, I have no reasons to doubt that. However, the flip side of this point is that by the same token, these same technologies requiring, requiring more brain than brawn are inherently more female-friendly and will increasingly enable women to serve meaningful roles in the military. As the nature of warfare changes, the, the classic image of thousands of foot soldiers charging up a hill will necessarily evolve, possibly to one of armed drones skillfully and remotely controlled by, you got it, women. Today, women make up about 33% of the Israeli defense forces, 15% of the US military, and 7% of the SAF regular forces. More than 90% of the positions in the IDF, or the Israeli Defense Force, are already available for women soldiers. And starting next year, 2016, 100% of the vocations in the US military will be eligible for women. Now, why it is premature today to conclude that military conscription for two years for women will definitely become necessary, I would argue that if we are to, that we need to start changing mindsets soon. Otherwise, it will be too late if the need to conscript women actually materializes because of the inherent negative attitudes towards conscription by women today. One way to introduce universal female conscription is in the form of a, a non-military short-term duration focusing on supporting, for example, our civil defense, home team, and even community and healthcare institutions. This would be not dissimilar to efforts already in place, such as our volunteer corps, which should, however, augment and not replace the need to conscript females to meet our demographic challenge. After all, to bolster these capabilities is part of the notion of total defense, which encompasses more than just the military. I think universal female conscription serves two purposes. One, it is socially unhealthy for our female citizens to support national service for men, but to believe that serving the nation, even in non-military ways, is not required of them. A national service ethos and pride should be inculcated in our young women as much as in our young men in the next 50 years of nation building. And secondly, should it ever become necessary, for whatever reasons, to conscript women into military service, the challenge would then be only logistical and technical, and at least not attitudinal, if we start now to ingrain into women the idea that national service is a natural part of their duty. 
Universal female conscription could start with the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth, or MCCY, the Ministry of Education, MOE, and the Civil Defense Forces, or CDF, taking the lead and with MINDEF only providing whatever necessary technical support so that this massive undertaking, which it will be, does not divert our military from its key role, which is the defense of the country. Such a scheme could perhaps last several months and be held during the interlude between graduating from secondary school and entering tertiary institutions or, re or entering uh, the workforce. Decentralized to the schools for logistical purposes, but with expertise provided by the uniform services, the home team, as well as the SAF. A program organized by MCCY or MOE could comprise a mix of school-level day classes, field practices, outward-bound style residential courses, and an annual equivalent of reservist training lasting several weeks during school term breaks could enhance the relearning and refinement of paramedical, paracivil defense, or parapolice capabilities. The intention here is to train future generations of female citizens who are not just actively engaged in the ongoing total defense of the nation, but also equipped with real life skills, which are different from, but no less important than, their male counterparts. Singapore in the next 50 years will certainly need a far more comprehensive voluntary services sector. National service women could clearly contribute to their country in this area. An important point, however, is that to maintain the fundamental ethos of universal national service, it should be truly universal for all Singaporean women and not be just on a volunteer basis. Now, an interesting but slightly different parallel can be found today in the Nordic countries, which are small and affluent like Singapore, currently enjoying peace, but never complacent about external threats. Their approach is to embed universal conscription into law and have it become a socially acceptable norm, but without necessarily rolling it out full scale, unless the need arises. In Norway, for example, national service for one year for women has just become law. However, their system of conscription, while it is universal liability for the sake of equality, actual call-up is actually far less than the pool of liable citizens. Less than 10% of liable men and women are actually called up, and recruitment of these people is based largely on self-motivation and other kinds of criteria, such as physical and mental fitness. But to maintain psychological readiness and to embed into the culture of their citizens that universal conscription is a duty, should it ever arise, this conscription is embedded into law for both genders. Denmark has a similar system. Sweden will soon introduce the same. So let me now move from external to the three dimensions of domestic security, which I'm going to define as internal security, civil security, and societal security to reflect their very different orientations. I define internal security threats as clandestine and potentially violent activities which seek to subvert and undermine the ideological foundations of the state. These will be threats which mainly, but not necessarily, culminate in terrorist activities. There are different origins of such threats. Communism 50 years ago and 
Islamic radicalism today, different forms will emerge at different times. To mainly deal with the communist threat, the British colonial government introduced, and it continues as law today, the Internal Security Act, or the ISA, which has as its main feature the right of indefinite preventive detention without being charged nor tried in court. Now, once a very controversial issue and heavily criticized by Western governments and NGOs, preventive detention has become grudgingly accepted as a necessary and hopefully limited violation of civil liberties as these same governments try to combat terrorism in their own societies. Post 9-11, the United States government in particular has embraced indefinite preventive detention. Recent terrorist events in Europe by their own citizens has even raised questions as to whether preventive detention should have been used even more aggressively than it was actually used. The debate, therefore, has now shifted in recent years from calls for outright abolition of the ISA and its equivalents into the need to ensure that this unconstrained, extraordinary power does not become abused. Lest anyone think that concern about potential abuse of the ISA in Singapore implies automatically a distrust of the current government or the PAP, we should remember that in this 50 years time frame that I'm talking about, it might well be a newly elected non-PAP government which might give cause for worry. The point is, potential abuse resides in any government with unconstrained powers, regardless of political heritage or ideology. Proponents for the abolition of the ISA argue that preventive detention can still be preserved under other legislation, such as a anti-terrorism act. My own sense is that if one accepts the principle of preventive detention, then whether we keep the ISA or replace it by a similar act really makes not much difference. My primary concern is that preventive detention must not be unconstrained and must have checks and balances which serve the legitimate purposes of security agencies whilst making abuse more difficult, if not entirely impossible. For example, the right to detain a person for an initial one-year period, possibly reduced from the current two years. That might be one way, but if so, that initial period should still remain unconditional and unconstrained. However, possibly subsequent detention periods should, could require a higher degree of external review than currently provided for. For example, two high court justices rather than the current single judge and two persons appointed by the president. Failure to achieve unanimous approval, for example, on further detention might trigger a process of further review by, for example, ultimately a nonpartisan panel comprising members of the legislature. There could perhaps also be a cap on the maximum number of consecutive detention periods unless specifically approved by a similar legislative panel. Now, such measures cannot fully prevent abuse by an all-powerful government. But in a parliamentary system with at least some opposition representation, truly national security threats, as opposed to opponents or critics of a ruling party, can be differentiated and abuses brought to public attention, even if that call to public attention does not release any of the detainees. 
A society which allows preventive detention should be acutely aware of the risks this brings to its own hard-won, much-cherished freedoms and civil liberties. Such a society must reflect deeply on the need for a balance between a government requiring extraordinary powers to deal with extraordinary threats and a civil society requiring space to freely express its views without fear of detention. In the next 50 years, the search for this balance will be dynamic and changing as the threats to internal security will change. What must not change is the constant awareness and the vigilance required for any people who surrender too much extraordinary powers to any government to realize that it does so at its own peril. Let me now move to civil, secu civil security, which deals with the relationship between the individual and the state on issues related to crime and punishment. My question here relates to the sustainability of various forms of punishment in the next 50 years as we, as we become an increasingly affluent, mature, and presumably more compassionate, quote-unquote, civilized, and humane society. Can we modify and eventually abolish some cruel and unusual punishments, quote-unquote, without sacrificing our notably and laudably low levels of crime? What is appropriate punishment in one era may not be so in another period. Indeed, the assumption behind the concept of quote-unquote cruel and unusual punishment in American jurisprudence is the notion that what constitutes cruelty and unusualness, so to speak, depends on current social norms. The practice of branding convicts on the cheek by hot irons was the norm in 17th century America or Europe, but by the 19th century, it was considered cruel and unusual. The same for flogging and whipping. To the extent that the duality of crime versus punishment reflects the values of a society, our 50th anniversary is a good time to reflect on how our evolving values will affect our criminal code. Of course, by now you may know that I'm referring specifically to the practice of caning, which might have been the norm in the past century, but which would certainly be construed as cruel and unusual punishment in the first world, to which we apparently have arrived, at least in terms of wealth, if not in other aspects. Now, there are two different approaches in the arguments against caning. First is the absolutist notion that caning is by itself barbaric and should be abolished. Second is the notion that even if one were to reluctantly consider this a necessary punishment for some offenses, it should be in some vaguely moral way, some vaguely biblical way, be appropriate to the crime so that a physically injurious punishment should be restricted only to those physically injurious offenses. Classically, of course, an eye for an eye and a life for a life. This concession to caning for violent crimes, such as rape or grievous hurt, 
actually has no basis in legal philosophy. It's actually revenge. But at least it meets the human desire for some kind of moral retribution, as I mentioned with biblical injunctions. But even this concession would find unacceptable the practice of caning for offenses such as spraying graffiti on walls, money lending by loan sharks, overstaying a visa. All these offenses and more now provide for caning. What started out in colonial times as caning for hardened criminals and violent triad gangsters who incidentally were not Europeans and therefore not worthy of the same humanity by our colonial masters, is now meted out for a very wide range of offenses with little relationship to each other, except perhaps that they were social problems at one time and caning was seen to be the most effective deterrent. Proponents of caning are not shy about the reason for its deterrent impact. It is intentionally brutal and cruel. In a rare and candid account with the Straits Times, the director of prisons once gave a graphic account, parts of which I quote below. Quote, the prisoner stripped of all his clothes is strapped to a trestle by his ankles and wrists. Correct positioning is critically important. If he, the person applying the caning, is too near the prisoner, the tip of the cane will fall beyond the buttocks and thus reduce the effect of the stroke. If he's too far from the prisoner, the stroke will only cover part of the buttocks. Now, most of the prisoners put up a violent struggle after each of the first three strokes. After that, their struggles lessen as they become weaker. At the end of the caning, those who receive more than three strokes will be in a state of shock. Many will collapse, but the medical officer and his team of assistants are on hand to revive them and apply antiseptic on the caning wound. Many now will pretend to faint, but they cannot fool the prison medical officer whose presence is legally required." Unquote. Interestingly, the colonial authorities practice flogging by what is affectionately known as a cat of nine tails, which we only see nowadays in movies, until 1954, when it was banned. Possibly caning might have been banned a few years later, but in 1959, the present government took over and indicative of the pragmatism by which we are now renowned, it decided that what works, works and should therefore be kept. And so caning has remained so for the last, last 50 years. And as we moved from third world to first world and others countries banned vestiges of centuries past, we added more nonviolent offenses for which caning was a punishment. Now, since we have placed deterrence as the sole reason for punishment and have abandoned moral proportionality altogether, one wonders what offenses we would not apply the cane to if that offense became widespread enough. I just noticed in the Straits Times that e-commerce crimes have increased by 200% in the last few years. So question, what appropriate punishment should we have to make sure that e-commerce crimes will go down very rapidly? I think the answer rests with you. As I mentioned earlier, graffiti spraying, money lending, repeated drink driving, visa overstaying were all added after independence. No new offenses have been added in recent years, I agree, but neither were any removed. The other egregious use of caning is for young people 
something which might surprise most parents here. The minimum age for criminal responsibility, guess, is how old? Anybody have a guess? Minimum age for criminal responsibility in Singapore is seven years old. Juvenile offenders between seven and 16 can be caned and put into solitary confinement. They can be imprisoned for life if under 18 years old and be tried in adult courts. Yet, as we all know, you can only vote at 21 years old. So is there a bit of discrepancy between the age of criminal liability and political maturity? Now, I have to agree on one thing. There is absolutely no huge public demand for the end of caning, or for that matter, for the abolition of capital punishment. To the huge 99.9% .9 of Singaporeans, this is a non-issue. As to whether it's truly a deterrent or not, most people do not even care. If caning helped get us to where we are today as a crime-free society, why even abolish it? Therefore, one can actually easily argue that if our government simply abolished caning, it would not be seen as responding to the desires of the public, since the public is not clamoring for it. And it can even be considered as irresponsible because if any government of the day abolished caning and crime rates went up, it would be an irresponsible government. But for the sake of a more humane penal system, considering a future without caning is both a governmental and a social imperative, to at least consider it. Thus, possibly a reasonable step any government can do is to impose a moratorium on caning, either selectively for various crimes or as a whole and to then measure for a period of time whether the offenses actually increase as a result of that or not. There's been quite a lot of literature in criminology about how the actual severity of the sentence is not the main deterrent. It is the speed by which an offender is caught and the consistency by which punishment is speedily applied, which is the major deterrent against crime. So this is quite a very fertile field and I've spent my New Year's break while my children were skiing in uh, Japan, as you can see, diligently researching up on this. For example, some people believe that caning for graffiti spraying was introduced in the 1960s because the Barisan Socialist supporters painted politically incendiary slogans on walls and caning was introduced to stop them. Now, whether that's justified or not is for the history books to, to discuss. But the likelihood of such forms of civil disorder with hundreds of people spraying graffiti on the walls of Singapore, public buildings, the likelihood of that recurring is probably not very high. And whether repeated drink driving will increase if offenders are not caned, I don't really know. But we can easily find out and measure the consequences. The result should then determine steps after that. Over time, and with the excellent law enforcement capability that we do have, I would hope that we can evolve into a still crime-free society without the need for punishments which belong more to centuries past and not centuries future. But if I'm wrong, we can always end the moratorium. I believe we need to consider this not necessarily now, but we're talking about the next 50 years. The hallmark of a society progressively evolving towards higher standards of civilized behavior is its ability and willingness to explore, debate, 
and try out new ideas and to test the efficacy. At this milestone of our national journey, we should have the moral audacity to question the sustainability of old ideas and to aspire for a higher level of human development. A moratorium on capital punishment follows the same logic as for caning, but it would be unrealistic to even think that this would happen unless we tried out a moratorium on caning, which at least is certainly far more unusual for societies to have, whereas capital punishment is far more common across many other countries in the world. But we can do certain things regarding capital punishment. We can tighten the criteria for capital punishment so that offenses right now, such as causing death even when you only intended to cause injury, or being involved in a group which caused a death, which are now capital offenses, perhaps do not need to incur the death penalty. And as for drug trafficking, an end to the mandatory death penalty and giving more leeway to judges, which was recently implemented, is clearly, in my view, a step in the right direction. The challenge for us, and of course for the law enforcement authorities, will be to maintain the laudable public safety for which Singapore is globally famous, while also progressively reducing the physically injurious and ultimately lethal forms of punishment. Because ultimately in the march of humanity towards civilization, one consistent marker throughout all these centuries is how a society punishes its offenders and not just how it rewards its heroes. We must bear that in mind as we think of the next 50 years. Though we already have a truly laudable, crime-free society, it is incumbent on us to consider how we punish our offenders and not just reward our heroes. I now come to the last dimension of security, which is societal security. The challenges to Singapore's societal, societal cohesion has always been religious and racial cleavages. The PAP's fundamental approach to this security issue has been to vigorously promote a multicultural and multiracial society with very robustly articulated and consistently protected rights for every minority to practice its traditions. No tolerance, zero tolerance is allowed for any community, whether racial or religious, to infringe on, dominate, or insult another. And instead of assimilation, where minorities are encouraged to jump into a melting pot and emerge as the same people, Singapore has always espoused integration, whereby people retain their racial and religious traditions but respect the rights of others. These policies have been widely lauded by all observers and is no small achievement when contrasted against serious racial or religious cleavages in developed countries such as the United States or for that matter in France as we have recently seen. Singapore's commitment to racial and religious harmony and equality of opportunity for all communities was never just an aspiration or an ideal or a vision. It was an imperative for simple survival. But even with this extremely laudable tradition, I think we can still do more to enhance social cohesion, especially at this juncture of history when new challenges also present new opportunities. 
And that opportunity is to gradually and carefully open up debate on eventually even the most sensitive racial and religious issues so that we achieve the full transparency, candor, and mutual trust between racial and religious groups, which then truly marks a mature society without the divisive tragedies of societies which allow totally free expression, even the risk of inflaming already volatile and emotional issues. Singapore, if it has erred at all, has been on the side of caution, so that the slightest discussion of anything potentially divisive in the realm of race and religion is considered out of bounds. European nations have perhaps erred on the other extreme, in allowing such freedom of expressions as resulted in the tragic uh, Charlie Hebdo massacres. I certainly believe, as I think most of us would, that if one has to err at all, erring on the side of caution is clearly a better choice. But nevertheless, if we aspire in the next 50 years to do something different, I think we can gradually introduce more transparency and candor in the discussion of race and religion so that our societal security can flourish with fewer and fewer OB markers. For example, ethnic quotas in HDB estates and mandatory ethnic representation in electoral constituencies are publicly known policies, but statistics and policies on the ethnic composition of the National Service, Army, and National Service Police are considered too sensitive for open discussion. Demographic data on new migrants are not openly available, but birth rates of different races in Singapore are public information. There seems to be not a high amount of consistency on what is deemed sensitive or not, and what is deemed confidential versus publicly available information. It can be argued also that the traditional fault lines of CMIO, Chinese, Malay, Indian, and other, are also transforming as new fault lines emerge. We all have read about the so-called curry wars, where Singaporeans of all races lined up against new citizens from China who objected to curry aromas from the HDB neighbors. And that example illustrates that culture and race are intertwined rather than inexorably fixed along simplistic racial lines. By the same token, this may be true for Singapore Malays versus those from neighboring Indonesia and Malaysia. Old fault lines may not be the same. Policies based on presumptions of these old fault lines may have to be revisited as we evolve. Issues of identity will be the focus of my final lecture. But my point here is simply that societal security requires us to eventually discuss, eventually and carefully note. We need to discuss openly even the most sensitive issues of race and religion at even the risk of courting controversy overseas or bordering into communal politics because sensitive issues are eventually desensitized when they're brought out into the open and discussed responsibly and diligently by all members of that society. Now, and finally, another area of, pot of potential social divisiveness is our new male citizens. The likelihood of their increasing in numbers can only increase, not decrease, because in-migration has to bridge some of the gap between our declining TFR, or total fertility rate, and a consistent, if not growing, population. 
Yet there are signs of resentment by our NS men against new citizens who benefit from Singaporean nationality but need make no sacrifices to obtain their passports. Adding salt to the wound is the fact that many employers actually prefer to hire young new citizens because they don't have reservist liability. And measures to reward reservists don't really solve the problem because many NS men see it as devices to buy off their disaffection. At the same time, reservists, Singaporean reservists, are not asking that new male citizens past NS full-time liability age serve the full two years which they are required to do. Most Singaporean reservists seem to only want a concrete demonstration of a willingness by new male citizens to sacrifice some of their time for their new homeland and indications of a genuine desire to be more integrated into the lives of their new compatriots. Inflow of foreign talent is generally regarded very positively by Singaporeans. But the issue is not just tolerance. It is about the integration of new citizens into Singapore culture. This can perhaps be achieved by requiring all new male citizens of reservist liability age to undergo a three-month program which need not require full residential training, but would impart civil defense, paramedical, and parapolice training, and with annual reservist liability of several weeks or so. This would clearly not be favored by those new citizens who only want the convenience of a Singapore passport and are willing to invest millions of dollars and buy a house in Sentosa Cove for it. It may, in fact, lead to a halt in such applications, which, in my mind, is no bad thing. But for those who genuinely want Singapore to be their home, the opportunity to integrate more into our society and be able to also say with pride that they too serve the country and sacrifice for it, such a program may even be welcomed, provided that the disruption, of course, is not enormous. So finally, in conclusion, Singapore, I think, can proudly celebrate its 50 years as a sovereign nation with some of the best international standards for all its uniform services, home team, or SAF. We can be proud of our public safety record and our rigorous adherence to multicultural, multiracial tolerance and mutual respect. Security in all its dimensions is a blessing which has taken decades to create and can all too quickly crumble through neglect, carelessness, reckless disregard, or irresponsible changes. Therefore, we should be cautious about needless tinkering. But at the same time, a willingness to change with the times, or indeed to ride on the crest of the tidal waves of history, can prevent the intellectual rigidity which weakens the sustainability of our society as a dynamic and an evolving culture. And unlike general political and economic issues which are subject to shorter time frames based on either election or business cycles, fundamental issues concerning society and what values we stand for take longer to unfold and to resolve as it requires citizens and civil society to engage in discourse between themselves and with governing institutions. By starting this public conversation now, we can build the capacity for discourse and reasoning, which should certainly benefit 
those Singaporeans who are going to inherit this nation. So finally, in this, the, the midpoint of my five-part series, I hope I've started to encourage younger Singaporeans to ponder the bigger issues of their future and to consider concrete responses. Only after much thinking, then debate, and then deliberation can vague ideas become reality. Whew. My next lecture is on March 4th at this same venue. The title will be a more fun one than security. It, be, it will be about demography and family. So instead of crime and punishment, I'll talk about CPF, which is a nice hot topic, marriage and babies. And on the final subject of babies, I shall soon be an expert because one month after the final lecture, I shall be called a yeye, which of those of you who know, I will be a grandfather. So thank you very much. And I'm very grateful that you have lasted. Those of you who have seen come three times in a row, I only need to come two more times and we shall all be free. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you have uh, heard uh, what uh, Ho Kwon Ping has uh, uh, delivered. I am now free to let you uh, take over, but uh, please uh, be mindful of the usual uh, rules, maybe you shouldn't call it rules, the usual uh, courtesy. Let us have your name and uh, uh, keep your question, comment short. Uh, don't make another lecture. Uh, so that we have more of you asking questions and offering your views. Okay? So, over to you. I attended the last one. I did not come for the first one since I was not here. But my sense is that we should have more people in their 20s and 30s asking questions because the next 50 years is yours. No? Uh, so, anybody would like to give it a shot? No one? Yes. Hi, Mr. Ho. Thank you very much. My name is Eliza Kang. And um, first, uh, I thank you very much for, you know, trying to tackle such a huge topic. Um, I had two points, I guess. The first, um, when you spoke about um, female conscriptions, um, that um, in, in my mind, I was also thinking about the men. Um, do the men need to do military service? Can they also not do, I mean, I think it's been discussed also in, in the papers as well, but I thought that was also an, another valid point to, to, to measure up against the female conscriptions. As female cons um, females join the national service, they could join healthcare or civil service, but so could men. And females who felt they wanted to join the military could as well. So um, that, that was one comment on my side. The second question I had was whether in this really broad topic of security, you had, um, pondered upon uh, thoughts on energy security and water security. Um, uh, also, um, um, 
food security for Singapore versus, you know, being, I guess, uh, how do you call it, um, amongst our neighbours, I suppose, and, and who have much more resources than we do. Did you have any comments about that? On, on your first issue, um, my sense is that if we were to ever have full two-year conscription for women into the military, you will find that there's a lot more combat positions, combat vocations that should be open to women. If, if you really go into it, the US military, the Israeli army has actually opened up, I mentioned that the US army has opened up all vocations for women now. Um, the Israeli army in particular has redefined even the role of infantry in more careful ways so that women can actually serve in combat positions in infantry, but not necessarily at the super front line actually directly uh, engaging with, uh, with, with, with troops. That clearly is possible. When I was talking about um, the sort of uh, social services, etc., that women could do, that was within the context that so long as we don't need to have full-time two-year conscription for women, and we just had a shorter-term conscription in order to overcome the attitudinal resistance that they might have, then at least it could be a three-month type of program for para-defense, para para-police, para-medical, para all these social services that I'm referring to. But clearly, if you read the literature and talk to modern military leaders today, there's an increasing perception that the ability for women to be integrated into the military is a subject that is quite similar to white Americans that used to have resistance about serving together with black Americans during World War II. And the whole notion that if you have men and women together in the army, uh, is going to lead to sex and rape and all these sort of things. The Norwegian um, military, for example, was the first in the world to actually have women serve together with men uh, in submarines, which is the most confined setting you can imagine. So I think my answer to you is yes, if we ever had full-time national service for women, it should not be women just be doing um, social services and men would be doing the fighting. So that, that would be the answer. The second one about energy security, water security, and so on, I, I thought about that, but I felt that I should try to address those issues which one could suggest either particular measures, like conscription for women, or changes to existing measures. Um, in the area of um, energy security and water security, I think you can find that a lot has already been written about it. It is a huge strategic imperative for Singapore, and in the whole area of water security, you can see how we've moved over the years to a lot more self-reliance. But I had to draw a line somewhere, and so essentially I, I felt that the, the other two institutes in Singapore that talked about sustainability in energy and in water and even food security, they might as well deal with that. You can only pretend to be authoritative up to a certain point, so I decided I wasn't going to stretch the point too far. <laughs> Yeah, but just on the food security, since I come from the S. Rajaratnam School, I can tell you that we are doing a lot of studies. Yeah, and uh, one amazing thing that I discovered, I have only been there three months, yeah, we are doing computer simulation on where our supply of food comes from and what should we do if they have drought and other disaster in those areas where our food comes from and what should we activate. Uh, 
this is where I find computerization an amazing uh, feature of our modern life. So we are doing whatever we need to do uh, to make sure that all of you have enough food. Uh, but the problem now is that in the area of rice cultivation, you know that we are taking more rice, huh? but actually the rice yield is dropping. So we do not know what kind of new substitutes that we have. Remember in the old days when we were growing up, we had to eat more wheat. The, the you said rice This, this guy, are dropping. Oh, I forgot, he was in America. No, yeah. I didn't know. We are growing rice in Singapore? No, 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 no. but the traditional yeah, supply. Right, yeah. Yeah. We, so, we, we just need to buy up the Thai Yinglux rice hoard. And then... Yeah, but uh, <laughs> there are maggots and what have you already, right? Yeah, but the Chinese have saved them now. They, they are prepared to take a few million tons of rice from Bangkok. So, okay. I have few in uh, some time for you. Ah, yes, over there. Hello, Mr. Ho. <clears throat> Thank you for your lecture. I do hope you excuse me if I don't stand to ask this question. In the first half of your speech, you talked about the gender imbalance in the national service. And in the second half, you alluded that racial imbalances is still an extremely sensitive issue. At what point in the next 50 years do you think that this is an issue we can move towards talking openly about? And to what extent do you think that the CMIO framework is self-perpetuating in preventing us from being able to talk about these issues? Come to my final lecture. <laughs> okay. More seriously, issues like CMIO and all that that deals with identity um, and culture as opposed to race and culture and how it's intertwined, I would like to discuss that um, in, in the final lecture about identity. On the issue of racial composition in our forces and so on, I think the right time is, is coming for people to discuss this in homes with different friends from different races. I'm not sure that the time is right yet for us to discuss these issues in a public setting with the media, with coverage from foreign media and, and so on. But I think there is a growing perception and I see it among young people that issues such as ethnic composition in the police and in the army and so on are being discussed among young people themselves openly. I would encourage this and I would hope at some point in time it can become more public, something that perhaps IPS may, may wish to do. I don't think that at this point it is particularly helpful to right now discuss this in a public forum. But I believe that time will come and I encourage that these opportunities be pursued by, by Singaporeans. First in private settings, semi-private settings, and then eventually in public settings. But I thought these days we have more transparency, no? It's a point that you mentioned. I have been advised, which I accept, that there are issues which are perhaps best not discussed at such a forum. And I take such advice seriously. It is better to err on the side of caution and to talk about things that will infuriate every woman in this room than to discuss things which one thinks are not sensitive but might well be very sensitive. 
I'm not sufficiently au fait with the whole flow of things in Singapore and overseas to want to counter the advice that I have been given and pretend to think that I can speak openly and possibly irresponsibly. So that would be my reply to you. But I would encourage you to speak with your friends openly in your own opportunities. Actually, it might be good to throw the question back at him and ask uh, what you find it offensive in any of these current uh, parameters. Or uh, I always hear people referring to the concept of CMIO, yeah, Chinese, Malay, Indian, and others. And uh, I actually plunged into a debate where there was strong views on both sides. Yeah. So if you are not ready to make any comments, maybe come to his last lecture. Maybe by then he will be more advised to speak up. I do feel that, sorry, just to answer your question, I do feel that the uh, CMIO framework does limit us from discussing what Mr. Ho talked about in this lecture, the issues between assimilation and integration. And I do hope that at some point in the next 50 years, we move beyond integration towards assimilation where we feel closer to fellow Singaporeans regardless of uh, racial ethnic groups uh, versus, say, an ethnic uh, a person from a similar ethnic background from a different country, for example, where we start to develop this idea of a nationhood better. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I totally agree that we can have an open discussion of broad issues such as assimilation versus integration. And by the way, I'm not sure I would fully agree that assimilation is a model we should move towards. I also think as that in the last lecture when I talked about identity, we should clearly talk about race in general, CMIO and so on. I was only alluding to specific policies, specific issues that perhaps are too sensitive to publicly discuss now. But broad issues like whether we should have a CMIO kind of categorization or whether we should have integration or assimilation and so on, I think it's very healthy and necessary for us to discuss these broader issues quite openly. Thank you. All right, next question. Yes, young lady there. Yeah. I'm Jia Xin. I have my question is on the same topic on freedom of expression. It's very common that ministers reply that Mm, Singapore does not have a mature enough society that people are not ready to discuss about several issues and hence the censorship. What do you have in response to that? Uh, my next question though is because you were emphasizing a lot about a mature society, what role do you think say international organizations or corporates have to play in that in Singapore? Thank you. I'm not quite sure about your second question. Okay, because um, it felt like there was a lot of emphasis on ownership from society, that citizens should feel sense of self-identity, contribution to the nation, and hence have more engagement with the government. I was wondering about the different stakeholders in the country though, like the many corporations in Singapore. Yeah. Well, I'll take the simple one first, the last one, about the engagement in Singapore life by corporations. Um, Ultimately, I think corporations are made up by individuals. I think you'll find that corporations in terms of board policies 
uh, most companies in Singapore, whether Singaporean or, or foreign, will certainly engage in those practices which support the nation um, and support nation building and so on. But companies by themselves can only support measures that government asks them to do. Companies can be asked to observe National Day and they will do so. They'll be asked to observe this day or that day or to get their um, employees to go and serve on CSR activities, etc. Companies themselves can adopt a greater sense of social mission, etc. But ultimately, even companies are made up of individuals. And I think ultimately, it's getting the individuals in the society engaged, which is most important, and not to just relegate it to this amorphous idea of companies. Um, your other point about information, I think, is a, is a very important one. And I hope I'm doing a publicity spiel for my last lecture which I'm desperate to have people come so it won't be an empty hall by that time. But frankly, what you've said I think is crit critically important. If we're going to have an active civil society, there, much, there must be much greater access to information. Um, I'm not talking about the declassification of classified documents, but I think you'll find that most governments tend to be overly protective of information. Um, and it's not that this is necessarily a policy from cabinet or prime minister. Generally, information is power, and even civil servants would like to give as little information as possible. And I would have thought that all of you in IPS and at universities, whether you're doing the most mundane statistical studies on, on uh, aspects of Singapore's development, uh, not at all trying to get sensitive classified information, you would find it's very difficult to get information. We cannot have a very active and participatory civil society if getting simple information from state agencies is very difficult. So I would support the call for some kind of Freedom of Information Act whereby state agencies are required to disclose information which is not purposely classified as secret or classified. Obviously, this still allows the room for overzealous civil servants to stamp classified on everything, but I think that's a risk we would have to accept because we cannot be the ones to decide what is classified or not classified. But at least it would open the way to have a change in mindset that a civil society needs as much access to information as possible. So that is something I think we need to promote more of. Do you know that uh, every year during a certain date, companies are required to do what they call recognizing national servicemen? And we have a rah-rah every year uh, on those occasions to thank the company for letting their employees, male employees, to go back for reservist training and we give away nice uh, medals and trophies. Uh, and when I used to get involved in this, companies really have to scratch their head to think how to do things more from the previous years. So they are actually quite into it. Uh, although these days, because they are not publicised in the newspaper or even in social media, so no one knows that some of these corporate sector guys are actually quite active in contributing their part to some of these uh, things that we take for granted. Any other? Hey, by the way, nowadays uh, I don't classify my email. No? Oh, really? Yeah. Of course, my security officer come and tell me that I must do it. <laughs> yeah. 
That's the biggest cop-out I ever heard. Yeah, so they say, why you don't want to classify? I said, nothing secret. I, 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 I cited Ho Kwon Ping's public lecture. Yeah, the only thing I add at the end is not good or good. That is not need to be classified, isn't it? Anyone else, please? Yes, sir. Hi, Mr. Ho. My name is David. I'm from MCCY. Uh, thanks for your lecture. I'd just like to pick up the point on civil society and civil discourse. Um, not from the government side. I agree that more data sharing is important, but maybe from the people side. Um, muscles atrophy from lack of use. And in the past few decades, maybe accidentally or on purpose, because the government hasn't really been supportive of civil discourse, our muscles, we haven't really exercised those muscles. How do you discuss sensitive issues respectfully, politely, and not in a sort of internet troll sort of way? Um, so maybe could you talk a bit about what you think or how you think civil society and civil discourse can evolve in the next few decades, next 50 years, so that we can get there. So we can eventually discuss the sensitive issues that we cannot today discuss in a healthy manner. Thank you. Well, I'm not usually stumped by questions, but this question stumps me because I, I, I perceive the need to move in that direction. And the trouble is, as you move in that direction, you will eventually, you will clearly upset some people. The question is a difficult one. How much can you upset and still be living within the boundaries of a relatively tension-free society? Or do you allow and engage in such amount of civic discourse that it goes out of control? So the answer, I, I don't have a specific answer. The only thing I would probably say is that if one were to promote this gradual increase in civil discourse, generally you find that most people would say if you started in a relatively rarefied environment rather than in a mass environment, it is a healthier way, an easy way to start. So I guess one, one possibility would be to actually have active discussion of such issues, be engaged in, I'm using IPS as an example, but by institutions whose responsibility is to involve people in discourse, put, bring people of different races and religions together, and in a pure Chatham House rules type of situation with zero reportage by the media, maybe that's one way to start, by actually throwing out relatively sensitive relatively volatile dis issues, discussing it within a small group of people who already are committed to knowing that regardless of the temperatures that may rise in the, within the room, they are there for specific purpose of trying to increase the level of discourse within society. And to the extent that this is never reported outside, I think it's probably relatively safe. So that's one way of doing it where you actually have institutions that create such opportunities. Universities and academia is a very good venue for this. Media is a very poor venue because media tends to generally inflame and exaggerate views. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, would you as a MCCY officer today, mm -hmm. 
Uh, before you put out a submission on anything that you want to say about a specific measure, actively go out and engage civil society organization. Before you put up a, uh, any documentation or a, 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 a case for saying, you know, we should uh, do more publicity information sharing, do you go and ask uh, civil society outside there or NGOs? How do you? You just look at your files and make a case? Uh, no, because since, since MCCY is the, supposed to be the Ministry of Engagement, um, we do engage public, and fortunately we don't work on sensitive issues like defence, since our, our events are like, for, for example, I work for the Youth Division, mm. so a lot of our policies are quite uh, non-controversial, but like volunteerism or leadership development. So we are in a luxury where we can openly discuss possible plans with our partners, other youth organisations and NGOs like YMC and so forth, um, quite transparently, and then share the views of the ground with our minister and then we make the decision. Yeah, I, think I think you should change your name to Ministry of Engagement. That's pretty cool. <laughs> MOE? No, no, MOE is only for education. <laughs> yeah. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Next, please. Yes, sir. My name is Clement Poanio. I'm a retired SF officer. Um, Mr. Ho, you mentioned very correctly that uh, military security is very important to us. Uh, you mentioned also that employers have a tendency to prefer males who are non-citizens, males who are of national service age. Now, um, security is very important to Singapore and in the next 50 years, how can we change, how can the government policies be done such that employers uh, will not place Singapore males at a disadvantage in a workplace. I mention this because it is very important for our young national servicemen to feel that they have a role and when they have a role in Singapore, they cannot on one hand contribute to the nation and yet in their workplace they are seen as you know, somebody who is difficult because of their in-camp training and so on. Thank you. I think that is a good point that you made in reference to the lady who, spoke, who asked the question about what can companies do to support um, the promotion of greater security in Singapore and so on. That clearly is one area. I, I for one, would not want to consider any kind of punitive measures or legal measures which force employers to have to engage Singaporeans rather than new citizens who don't have national service liability or foreigners. I think once we go into that area, it's a very, very slippery slope down which we then create all kinds of protectionism for our own male Singaporeans, which is very unhealthy. I think it is probably necessary, and I do think a lot of the larger companies, even smaller ones, do recognize that their Singaporean male employees who have to go out for two or three weeks every, every year to do national service are doing something that's important and they are, they are not to be disadvantaged against those who don't have national service liability. Sometimes companies need to be reminded of that, otherwise they tend to go for, um, for the foreigners or the new citizens. But the only solution, I think, is one of convincing people. 
not any kind of mandatory measures that require companies to favor Singaporeans who, who do national service. I think it has to be voluntary. Well, you still get some companies who will be difficult, some employers. Yeah. So we have to find other ways of eating, applying social pressure, I guess. Hey, today is so quiet. No action. Huh? Kwon-ping, ah, there's one yeah, gentleman there. Mr. Ho, I'm, uh, I'm Tan uh, Puhi, I'm retired. Uh, we've been blessed in the last 50 years where there's actually no, no war uh, and no action really from the SAF. Do you see that in the next 50 years, we'll, we'll be thus blessed that we'll, we'll not see any action in the next 50 years? You know the Chinese say, you ask me, I ask you. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> no, next 50 years, clearly there ain't going to be no war. Let's, let's disband our National Service Army. We don't need it. Um, I, I, I think if anybody would know that answer, you would know what to do next. And it's clear that the serious answer to that is a worrying one. I have met people, especially younger people, who say, Really, do we even need national service? We haven't had a war for 50 years. Why don't we just have a professional army? And that should be good enough. That is something that's a little bit more difficult to, to argue against than, than asking oneself, you know, are we sure we're going to have war in the next 50 years? My view is that, sure, you can take that position and say we don't need it. We don't need a national service army. We just need a professional army. But if you were to take that view, and then you degrade our military deterrence, you better hope you're right. Because if you're wrong, it's, you cannot make a mistake on national security. You can make a mistake on economic policy. Companies, countries bound, rebound after recessions and even a near depression in the US, you can make all kinds of terrible mistakes economically and you can rebound. Greece will rebound from itself. But if we make a wrong decision on military deterrence and we happen to be wrong, I don't think there's a lot of, we're not, we're not a Russia that can take Napoleon invading in deep into its, its, uh, its hinterland and still survive. I mean, I don't want to go into all that because it sounds so, you know, government uh, sort of rhetoric, but we are a small dot. And I think if our young people fail to believe this and to think that military deterrence is not really necessary and is a luxury, I would say this is going to be a very, very uh, dangerous situation for our young people in the next 50 years. It's better be prepared. Huh? Yeah, I, I, you know, what about all the women? Can the women here jump up and say, yes, I support universal conscription for myself. There you have it, one day. Are you in favour? Yeah, she happens to be my daughter, she has no choice. <laughs> the wife also. Just because you give them a skiing holiday in Japan, they all came to support you. <laughs> hey, but Guan Ping, uh, I, 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 I have a question from somebody. Uh, they asked me to ask you this question if you did not touch it. 
Yeah. So since you are still thinking about your comments, yeah, this is about dual nationality, dual citizenship. Because in the next 50 years, can the Singaporean also be citizen of another country? Uh, is it uh, worthwhile thinking about this? Yeah. So this my I done my job. Huh? It happened to be his hand, his own handwriting. <laughs> you know, I've been a moderator before. When you're desperate, nobody's asking questions. Pull it out and see somebody ask that question. I think the serious answer to that is, I think this is a question, this is an issue we need to seriously consider. Yeah. The, the historical, the traditional, we all know the traditional line, that is we cannot afford to have Singaporeans who might have dual nationalities because there's dual loyalties and so on. Um, I'm not entirely sure of that because I'm, that has to deal again with the issue of identity. Uh, to what extent are we possibly losing Singaporeans who want to live in another place and for the sake of convenience or other reasons take nationality elsewhere but would also like to be Singaporeans. So I, I don't have a, a fixed view on that, not halfway near as my relatively aggressive views about the need for military deterrence. The issue about dual nationality I think is, is both a practical one as well as a conceptual one about identity. And I do believe that is an issue we need to seriously consider. And we also need to have more statistics to see how many Singaporeans are we, quote unquote, losing because we are forcing them to make a choice. So yes, I think that is a very valid issue for, for discussion. How come King Chuan is not asking me whether we're going to go to war with another country or this or that? He's very well behaved today. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Kongping, you know I have the highest regard, respect, and admiration for you. But I was a bit disappointed in your, in how you so beguilingly, with such reasonableness, spoke about the ISA to the point that your conclusion was we still need it, it will be modified. Because talking about mistakes, national mistakes that we cannot afford. My sense is, if it had not been a mistake 50 years ago or 30 years ago, it's certainly a big mistake to still have the ISA now. That the history of how it has been abused, well, this is a personal view, but I hold it very strongly. It has been absolutely abused, not for security, but for political reasons. So how can there, because it is so powerful that any government will just be too seduced to use it. If I'm in the government, I'll probably use it. It's, it's too seductive. It gives me so much power. And although I will try to make sure that it is used, it is justified as a security uh, action, I will know that it is a political action. So let me have your views on why you think it's still necessary. Well, we know that both you and I have been victims of the ISA. So we may have relatively emotional views about it. And having been a victim of the ISA, 
I would say I can, I do have emotional memories of it. But you also, I also have to consider today, if one were today in a position of authority and you were running this country, and you anticipate some of the kinds of threats that you see happening in other societies in the West with the kind of potential threats that we have, could I honestly say to myself, if I were today the Prime Minister of Singapore, I would want to abolish the ISA? I can't honestly say I would want to do that because I do believe there are threats which cannot be countered by simply bringing people to trial and charging them. And I think you will find now the nature of threats to internal security to the extent that we see them now in the Western world and you see that even Western government and NGOs that used to be crying against uh, preventive detention have recognized that preventive detention is necessary in certain circumstances. So in my view, a simple abolition of the ISA, and not just to say the Internal Security Act per se, the simple abolition of the right of any government to exercise preventive detention without charging a person. I think the removal of that power can also lead to perhaps even more dangerous. So my biggest concern now is the potential abuse of preventive detention by a government for illegitimate reasons related to its own survival as opposed to the survival of society. Now, how can you prevent that kind of abuse? In my view, you can tinker with the system so that you do not give such a long period of detention. You can tinker with the system so that the external reviews may be more rigorous, so that rather than government appointees, you may need other people who need to approve it. And I propose that ultimately they must be also subjected to legislative review because even if you have a ruling government that can uh, exercise preventive detention, like in the United States, you have an administration which is in power and it exercises uh, preventive detention, but by having an opposition in Congress, ultimately abuses are brought to light and there is at least a debate on that. So my whole focus now is on how you can, you can create more, and I'm not saying 100%, you can create more safeguards so that abuse of preventive detention for political, partisan political reasons can at least be checked more than in the past. But I do find it difficult personally to think that preventive detention should altogether be abolished because I think that can open us up to even greater dangers. Yes, Jenna does. Can IPS director ask questions? No, the IPS director is not allowed to ask questions. Can you please sit down? <laughs> okay, he is now not speaking as IPS director. Um, like uh, Casey, I also have a great deal of respect and admiration for you. <laughs> What's the uh, but, sir? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't. Um, um, I want to return to an earlier point. Um, the question of race and religion and in our history. Um, I think we need to have a much more nuanced understanding of that history and, um, and understand why 
we cannot have a consistent position on these questions. You know, we began as an independent nation because of race and religion. There were two racial riots in 1964, and lots of people died. And since then, we actually have been consistently inconsistent on these questions. Let me explain. Sometimes we say race and religion doesn't matter. We have to be blind. Uh, uh, you make decisions on uh, who you choose, who you employ, um, what scholarships you give, and so on. You don't take into consideration anyone's race or religion. But sometimes we say race and religion matter. Um, we, we say, we insist that uh, um, parliament has to have a certain number of minority representations. Um, uh, we, we, uh, we say um, uh, HDB housing estates, you know, there has to be uh, a certain quota for particular races. Sometimes we say there is freedom of conscience. You can free to choose whatever religion you want. But sometimes we also say Christian groups, you don't proselytize among Muslims. We do this. It's not allowed, in the, you know, it's not the law, but we do this. And we have used very coercive powers in order to prevent such things. And let me go back. In 1964, after the racial riots, the race, race, reason, relations between the races just changed overnight. And you know, the effect of that lingered for decades. Even in the 1980s, you could see Malay families, for example, congregating in particular HDB estates. And they weren't sometimes along the same floors. Why is that so? Because of the memory of the racial riots. If something similar were to happen again, you want to be with people you're familiar with. So, so these are very, very delicate things that you have to manage. It's you feel your way forward. I don't think we will ever be in a situation, we will ever get to a situation where you have the kind of regime that obtains in France. Even the regime that obtains in France doesn't obtain elsewhere in Europe. There are blasphemy laws in, in many parts of Europe. Uh, you can't say certain things about, uh, about Jews. You can't say certain things about the Nazi party. Or, uh, or you can't deny the Holocaust. It's against the law, you know, in many parts of Europe. But will we ever get to a situation like in France where you're free to say whatever you want about somebody else's religion? I don't think so. It's not possible. I don't think so, even within the 50 years. So I agree with you, we have to work towards a, we've come a hell of a long way. Um, you know, we have an IPS survey uh, that we did last year, a huge big survey. We interviewed uh, 4,000 people. Um, and some of the findings are incredibly heartening. Uh, for example, uh, we had a finding, uh, asked people, uh, do you, when you uh, appear at government counters, uh, public counters, police, or uh, schools or hospitals, do you feel that um, you are discriminated on the basis of your race? And we found that very 
80% and more of people said they never felt that. And then we checked the results to see whether, I mean, of course, if you're a minority Chinese, you won't feel that, right? But we've checked among uh, Malays and Indians, and actually it was the same result. So when you think about it, the fact that you have the majority of Singaporeans of no matter what race perceive that they are not judged and discriminated against on the basis of their race by the police, which is usually the object of suspicion. You just saw that in Ferguson in America. Uh, 84, you saw that in LAP, uh, um, Los Angeles. There was a huge riot because of, because of the perception that uh, the police in LA um, discriminated against blacks. Hmm? Uh, so it's a huge achievement. But on the other hand, when you ask people whether they, 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 you know, they have friends across different races, for example, intimate friends, and the numbers go down. So I think you know, this, we have come a hell of a long way. It's, it's surprising and actually amazing to me that um, we have come this, this far. But I don't think in this question of race and religion, you can actually arrive at a position where you apply certain principles consistently across the board, because it doesn't work that way. Thank you, uh, Janadas. In case you don't know him, he is the IPS director, uh, the man who is responsible for uh, persuading Ho Kwon Ping to do this series of lecture. And uh, any comments to his uh, mini lecture? I think my only comment is that what I was asking for is not that there be consistency in the application of policies. No government, no country is ever consistent in its application of any policies, whether it's racial or economic or whatever. Consistency is something one strives for, but one doesn't actually arrive at. I was only referring to the fact that the overwhelming reason for our success has been the fact that there have been so many OB markers and a lot of things are not allowed to be discussed or discouraged, actively discouraged from being discussed, which I, I think was absolutely needed in our first 50 years. All I'm saying is that some of these issues, we should now begin to dare to gradually and carefully surface them for discussion. And the, the main point I think I was trying to make was that sensitive issues become desensitized if there's more discussion about them, so long as that discussion does not inflame sentiments. And that's all I'm saying. But I agree with you that you, you try for consistency, but you, can't, you can never be completely consistent in, in the application of any policy. Thank you. Yes, please. Hi, good evening. My name is uh, Joel Chong. Uh, in talking about unusual and cruel punishment. I'm just curious to know as to how come you chose to talk about caning as opposed to, say, the death penalty. Because <clears throat> um, although not on the same scale as caning, the death penalty too has been expanded uh, and now covers drug trafficking as well. Will we be having the same conversation about the death penalty in the next 50 years as to how we're talking about caning now? Why did I choose caning rather than the death penalty? I think because in my view, the death penalty is an issue, is a punishment which is still retained by a lot of countries. Whereas caning is such an unusual punishment 
that you will find very few countries, except those which had the original legacies like Malaysia, together with Singapore, or Saudi Arabia, that has caning. So essentially, to put it another way, I'm going for low-hanging fruits, so to speak. I think it's easier for a society like Singapore doing a survey of punishments around the world to recognize that the kind of caning that we're doing, which we call caning, but is actually flogging or whipping, is perhaps something that we can gradually do away with. Capital punishment is still retained by many developed societies. So it becomes really, if I were to advocate an end to capital punishment, I think I would be taking a relatively, uh, I'll be taking a particular position on it rather than to try to be a disinterested observer and say that essentially caning is so unusual to developed societies and even most other societies except a few like Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries around the world that perhaps it does not behoove a society that is claiming to be to have gone from third world to first in one generation to still retain this practice. So that's why I advocated the moratorium on caning first. And the second reason is a very practical one. I think if you call for an, ab an abolition of moratorium and capital punishment, but you keep caning, I think it's a little bit reversed. Although, of course, you could say that the punishment itself is much more severe in terms of capital punishment. But it's a more common punishment, so therefore I did not a attend to that issue. Whereas I think caning is so egregious that it's something we should seriously consider doing away with. Is there a question there? Oh, yes, please, young lady there. Wow, you have to read from your computer. <laughs> I, I was taking notes. Uh, okay, feel free. Yeah. Uh, my name is Yomin, and uh, I'm a student. Uh, I was just wondering, you were talking about cleavages, right? Um, uh, new fault lines coming up, and uh, I, I realized you didn't talk about the uh, right uh, increasing income gap. So I have two questions that are kind of related um, that, that I want to ask because I'm uh, from the point of view of a student. The first one is that uh, the increasing income gap right, is, um, is becoming more evident in educational institutions and I would like to hear your views on it and whether it's a, a big problem. And the second question is actually related to it because um, I see that many of my schoolmates as volunteers, uh, you know, like you must meet a minimum requirement for CIP hours. So usually the volunteers and the beneficiaries, there's a very huge gap between them. So like volunteers usually come from top schools and they're all like, oh, we are here to help the poor people, something like that. So there's a gap between them. So is there any way you think that can close the gap? Because like, um, from what I see, it's quite a huge issue if many of my schoolmates are going to be like policy makers next time and then they see the people they are making policies for as a separate group of people. Yeah, thank you. I think those are very serious uh, questions. On the issue of, when you say there's greater income inequality in our academic institutions, I would assume that what you're referring to is the fact that increasingly that it is the children of university graduates who get into universities and get into the good JCs and so on. Is that what you're alluding to? Uh, yeah, not just 
that, but like, um, from what I see, um, many of my schoolmates, okay, I'm from a JC, and many of my schoolmates see uh, the friends from ITE as very separate and, you know, like, it's as if they belong to a different world, because we had a joint uh, project with ITE. And when my schoolmates shared their views, they were like, oh, actually, I realized that ITE people are quite similar to us. I never knew that. Something like that. So I was like, shocked. Yeah. Which JC are you from? <laughs> I would say there's probably some JCs don't, that don't feel so elitist. Which one is yours? Is this re recorded? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Raffles Institution. Oh. Did you hear the collective groan in the audience? Now, which, what other school would feel not looked down upon when you perform CSR activities to them? Uh, as in, I don't see like, I, I'm quite an active volunteer, but I don't see volunteering as, uh, like, I'm helping a separate group of people. I won't give you a hard time because my wife is giving me some <laughs> terrible looks because she was from uh, uh, RGS and my daughter from uh, RGS, and so oh. they're very big supporters <laughs> of the Raffles cluster. I think what you, what you, what you mentioned... I, I'm not criticizing my school. <laughs> I think what you've mentioned actually is a serious problem at, at various levels. And I can identify two levels here. One is an insidious self-perpetuating cycle whereby you, where you cannot block it and that is that the children of well-off families tend to generally do better. It's self-reinforcing. You find that generally the children of doctors become doctors. A lot of the children of lawyers become lawyers. And statistically, it is, a, it is an issue that I know government has looked at, and that is the proportion of our students in our JCs and universities whose parents are university educated is increasing. You cannot do anything against it by saying, if, well, if your parents have to be happen to be university graduates, we're going to you know, deduct some points against you and discriminate against you. But it is a problem that it's, it's a social problem because clearly our schools are highly meritocratic. The reason we don't allow totally private schools in the US and so on, and even the schools that you go to are state schools where income is clearly not a barrier for attending the best schools, the best universities in Singapore. But we do have an insidious system now that it's not easy to change. And I don't think there's an easy answer to this. You cannot at the same time also create barriers for the children of university graduates to go into university. But it is getting harder for the children of non-university educated parents to get into university. How do we, how do we solve this? The, the fact that tuition is taken up by everybody and the fact that tuition costs money makes this even worse. But again, you cannot now have a rule that children cannot have tuition. So these are the insidious effects of income inequalities, and it's not an easy, not an easy solution. All I can say is, I, I know MOE is very aware of it, but these are social issues that have to be dealt with. The other issue that possibly can be dealt with more, and I know MOE is trying to do with it, deal with it in some ways, is elitism within our own educational establishment. I have long been a critic of this 
kind of, of elitism which is manifest in the gifted program, in streaming, and in many other ways so that those students like you who go to very good schools, legitimately so, we make fun of you because, because we see you as coming from elitist schools and so on, and, and it's wrong. So we do have a, a system now and it has to do with gradings of schools, ranking of schools, and that's why you've seen the MOE now. Uh, Minister Hengsby-Kitt has tried to institute a new system whereby there's less grading of schools, but then there's a counter-reaction from families. Families whose children do go to top schools get very offended if there's no more ranking because they want their children to belong to the top-ranked schools. So it, it works in, in different ways. The only thing I can say is that this is an area where the, it is not that sensitive as race and religion is. It's a critical issue that involves everyone, and it's an issue where there should be a lot more debate because it is not that sensitive, and yet it is highly complex. So I hope you raise up more of these issues when you attend other fora. Oh, what about the gap between volunteers and beneficiaries? You know, to some extent, I think that is that is going to be necessary. If you, are, if you are volunteering, whether you're volunteering from RJC or volunteering from any of the JCs, the, the idea of CSR is that you're probably going to old folks' homes, you're going to poorer places, you're doing volunteering for the more needy. Now, when you do volunteering for the more needy, you can either do it from an attitude of superiority, which some people do, or you do it from an attitude of true empathy. And I think the, the schools and the institutions which can Im impart to students, as we try to do in SMU, <clears throat> trying to do a bit of <laughs> sort of a PR work here, we try to create in SMU, and I'm sure your school tries to do it also, so that, so that when you do CSR work, you realize that you become conscientized yourself. In Banyan Tree, we try to do that with all our associates so that they don't think that they are the do-gooders and they're more superior and they're pitying and helping people. It is a two-way process. CSR work with people conscientizes the do-gooder as much as it does benefit the recipient. And I think that's an important value of CSR that you realize by doing CSR, you've actually improved yourself. And I think that's the kind of attitude that one must have. Okay, put it on your Facebook and send it out. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you get some good friends who come in and share the views with you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, second time, yeah? Well, I'm taking on from that uh, point because um, in the context of national service, um, for those of us and those among here who did, who were among the first national servicemen in the mid the mid-60s, you will know that national service then was excellent. It was a melting pot because during basic military training, you had the NFEs, that means no formal education, and you had the university grads all in the same platoon, in the same companies. Today, unfortunately, unfortunately, streaming not only is done in schools, streaming also is done in national service, and that is I'm sorry, stupid, because it lost us an opportunity to allow Singaporeans to understand each other that we are all 
from the same stock, not elites and the others. Now, those of us who did national service in the early days also, and those who were better educated, also realized that the NFEs, the no formal education people, they are superbly street smart, and actually, the more educated ones learned a lot from them as how to be street smart and not just book smart. So we have lost a fantastic opportunity. So Mr. Ho, would you recommend that we go back to the 60s as to how we group our people in national service? Yes. When did you do your NS? When were you enlisted? No, I'm a regular. I, I mean, the second I was in the second batch officers. I started my military career in November '66. Wow! So I know what it was because I have commanded platoons, companies, battalions, and they were excellent opportunities for the melting pot approach to good citizenry. I you should you, go back to that. I, I, I have to say I totally agree with you. I was on the sixth batch, so I was in 1972. And I don't know whether why they changed, and I don't know whether there's a need to do so. So I cannot understand. Mindef may have a reason for doing so, but I totally agree with you. Um, when I did my reason, when I did my basic training all the way up, and then after I became a platoon commander, the troops I had to command. But particularly when I was doing my basic training, it was with primary six uh, dropouts, it was with a whole bunch of other people. You actually learn to respect them and realize that you are not the great smart guy that you think you were because you actually interact with people a lot more. That aspect of national service has since been lost. So I don't know the reasons why. Perhaps there are very good reasons for it. I don't know. But I would totally agree with you that from the perspective of nation building and the perspective of understanding and empathy, we should not have a system whereby all the JC graduates all come out and they all go to do uh, basic training together and then do their OCT, OCT together. The basic training at least should be one big melting pot and I think that would help all of us uh, congeal together great, more greatly. So I don't know the reason why but um, you should probably raise it up to MINDEF. Oh, we have done many times. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, I have another question there. Uh, this will be the last one for tonight since uh, time is catching up and I have to go and catch a plane. Good evening, Mr. Ho. Uh, my name is Daniel Tay. I work as a financial advisor. I'd like to ask you a question on this theme of uh, security and sustainability. Now, Singapore as a nation, we've gone through many decades of uh, incredible success, the envy of some countries. Um, so much so that Singaporeans, we feel that, that we are entitled to succeed in life. This has led to some people in my generation feeling quite disillusioned with their lot in life. They feel entitled to succeed and they are not succeeding. As a result, on one hand, some, some people are increasingly unhappy with, like this lady says, the income gap. Uh, the, the not so well off are increasingly unhappy. And what do you think this will what effect do you think this will have on our nation's security? That's the first question. The second thing is this same group of this same generation of Singaporeans are being outperformed by much more uh, driven, much more competitive, and much more hardworking immigrants. So, how will this affect our sustainability as a country? Thank you. 
I think the two questions seem to revolve around one central theme, and that is Singaporeans are feeling increasingly entitled. They are, it, we are facing the problems of a more affluent society with complacency, with entitlement, and so on. I must admit that I don't know of any other way of solving this problem until unless we get hit by a recession or we get hit by a lot of problems. I cannot fault the younger generation who feel more entitled, who feel more complacent. You can't fault them because they grew up in a far more stable and secure Singapore, a far more affluent Singapore than their parents grew up in. So to only constantly chide them and say, oh, you know, you are being complacent, you feel entitled, you're not as competitive as these very hungry immigrants from uh, Myanmar or from China. That also, I know, grates against many of the young Singaporeans I talk to who basically say, look, we grew up in this society of wealth and affluence and so on, so how can you tell us to be as hungry as the people who, who are coming here from China and Myanmar? I think there's some validity about that. So I think the only thing you, one can do is to constantly remind oneself that this complacency and this entitlement is dangerous. I think it is a responsibility not just of the older leaders, whether they be social leaders or they be political leaders, to keep on reminding younger Singaporeans that they are being entitled and they are being soft and so on, which after a while I think young people when they hear that too often they just tune out because it's not their fault they're that way. I think it is incumbent, in fact, among our own young people themselves to see that this is a danger. And therefore, when young Singaporeans travel overseas, they must be acutely aware of the differences between Singapore and the outside world. They must be acutely aware not to be so paternalistic and judgmental when Singaporeans travel overseas and see the dirtiness in Jakarta and the poverty in Vietnam and they just look at it disdainfully. That is clearly one of the problems we have. So I think, ultimately, this, is not a, this problem can be solved very easily if we ever hit a super bad recession and massive layoffs among Singaporeans, then that will certainly cure the problem because then there won't be a sense of entitlement anymore. But it is rather, rather ironic that we would have to go through this in order for Singaporeans not to feel entitled. So that's not a solution one would want to have. The only other solution one can think of having is really a combination between older people telling Singaporeans about this problem, but particularly younger Singaporeans talking among themselves because you've got a lot more street cred when you talk to each other than your parents telling you that you are entitled and you're sport and you're soft. Young Singaporeans who talk to themselves about this problem and try to resolve it, I think that has a lot more credibility. So essentially I'm throwing back the problem at you and saying I think it's a real problem but there's only that much those of us in our generation can do without you tuning out. It's incumbent upon yourselves in the younger generation to say this to your own uh, counterparts. And that's the only way your generation then will become a responsible one that will not be entitled. Thank you, Mr. Ho. Thank you, Mr. Ho. <laughs> I you, Mr. want to bring this uh, proceeding to a close. Uh, I was told by the organizer I should say a few things, but uh, uh, what else is there to say? Uh, 
just now Pan Cheng Yan said you are such a natural speaker, public speaker, uh, articulate and think on your feet, uh, have an answer for every difficult question. Yeah. Yeah. What can I say? But I think with regard to David, right? Your question, the last question. Daniel, sorry. Don't feel insecure. Lah. Singaporeans are quite solid, you know. Yeah. And going into the next 50 years, I think we will find solution to our problems here and there. Uh, frankly, I thought that uh, uh, Kwon uh, articulation of some of the issues that will come up is really a uh, statement of how to become greater from what is good now yeah, in the next 50 years. Uh, I think we will find our way. Yeah, and this kind of uh, discussion, exchange of views, reflect some of our own uh, thinking, our doubts. But it's also good to get some uh, response from people like him, Ho Kwon Ping, and give you some encouragement. We are not that bad. Lah, yeah? So don't worry. Yeah? You can stand up against any of the other foreign talent that we have. And don't feel that, you know, uh, there should be this sense of entitlement. We should continue to uh, work for it. Yeah. And for the young lady with all the income gap uh, uh, differentiation, uh, don't feel too bad about it. It's actually life. If there is no differentiation between one group and another, I don't think we have a society. No? Yeah. So it's for you to improve the society and make it better or make it less uh, obvious. So I close on that count and hope that all of you come uh, to the next lecture.